As you might imagine, my sermon this morning has been written and rewritten several times. I actually often have several versions of a sermon or parts of a sermon that don't make it into the final sermon that is preached. And even more interestingly, though, as I've told you all before, the sermon that is heard is not always the sermon that is preached. People sometimes hear what they're expecting to hear, maybe what they're hoping to hear, but more often they might hopefully even hear the message that they need to hear. I remember sitting with some folks after preaching at another church and someone thanked me for something very specific that I absolutely did not say. I kindly said, you're welcome, and I moved on. It was a helpful reminder. One Sunday morning here, after one of several school shootings that took place, have taken place during my time that I've been here, one of you approached me before church and said, and said to me, I hope you're going to say something about the shooting. If not, I have no reason to be here. That same Sunday, after worship, I had someone tell me as they were walking out the door that I should be careful that I should be careful about talking about politics in church. Same morning, same sanctuary. Expectations of the congregation, expectations of those coming to worship God, expectations of the community of faith. During the pandemic, our worship cycle has changed dramatically. This is one of those mornings where I wish that I was with you in the sanctuary looking out at those of you who on a week like this chose to come to church, chose to come to a sanctuary. But also looking out at you and wondering whether my words would anger you because they weren't strong enough or anger you because I was too political. I'm not going to please you all this morning. And I've accepted that. That's actually not all that true. I'm a people pleaser. I like to smooth things over. I like to keep people happy. It's what I do. And so because of that, I don't really think that I've accepted the reality that when we follow Christ, it means that pleasing God comes before pleasing people. Pleasing God, honoring God, means choosing to, honoring, to honor God over honoring our own comfort though. But aside from comfort and pleasing, following God, following Christ, means that we are over and over again being called to a realignment with God's purpose and vision for the world, even when this purpose and vision is counter to our comfort and maybe even our interest. So friends, I'm asking you, I'm inviting you to trust in God, to be open to the words of this sermon, words that are an offering from me to God as much as they are an offering to you. Let us pray. Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on us. May the words of my mouth be words that bring glory to you and strengthen us all on the journey. 
If there are words of mine that do not bring you glory, let them fall away and be forgotten. But if there are words from my lips that can draw us closer to you, then almighty God, all praise and honor and glory be to our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. This morning's gospel text that Loretta read for us is Mark's account of the baptism of Jesus. This text and baptism, our baptism and the baptisms we have witnessed can be helpful to us as we consider the world around us and particularly how we've interacted in the world, in our nation these past several years. The story is familiar. Even if only vaguely familiar to you, the story is familiar to most people. The almost mythical figure of John the Baptist, this man eating locusts and honey, who's covered with fur pelts and living in and out of the wilderness. The Jordan River, in fact, it's seen as a boundary line. One side is wilderness, one side is not wilderness, stretching hundreds of miles, separating separating the wilderness away, and John is straddling the wilderness, calling people to repentance. He's educated. He knows the Hebrew scriptures, and he's using the words of the prophets to declare that someone more important than him is coming. He says, the one who is more powerful than I is coming. The one who is more powerful. Another way to translate this is to say that the one who is stronger is coming. Stronger, without a comparison specifically to John. And there's a reason I, I translate it that way, because the Greek here is not, it's not clear and it's not specific, but I think this interpretation is better. One who is stronger is coming. John is, of course, talking about Jesus. He's talking to these people about Jesus and saying that this one who is stronger will come. And this declaration, it's setting up a theme throughout Mark's gospel about Jesus. In Mark chapter 3, just a few chapters later, at verses 20 through 27, there's a powerful description of Satan, or in, in this part of the text called Beelzebub as being like the owner of a house, occupying the house. And he's referred to as the strong man. And there are many questions asked in this text. Mark writes, if a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but his end has come. And then this is the key. Not anyone, no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his property without first tying up the strong man. Then, indeed, the house can be plundered. And why does this matter? It matters because that word, strong, used to describe the strong man, that's the same root of the word that is used to introduce Jesus at the beginning of Mark's gospel. The word that John the Baptist uses when he says that the one who is stronger is coming. Stronger. 
And so in Mark 3, when we read that Beelzebub, which by the way, comes from the name of another god, Baal Zabul, which means Lord of the Flies. When we read that this Lord of the Flies, this strong man can only be taken down by one who is, well, stronger, then who is that one? Who is that one who is stronger? That one who is stronger is Jesus. Mark's declaration then, when John the Baptist says that one who is stronger is coming, is not merely a statement about Jesus, but rather a statement about the strength of Jesus and the strength of God against all evil. The one who is stronger is coming. A little bit earlier in Mark's gospel, between these two texts, right after Jesus is baptized, Jesus goes out into the desert. When he comes out of the desert, his ministry really begins, and he encounters a man. Our text, a man, our text writes that this man is possessed by an unclean spirit. This man is taunting Jesus. The spirits are taunting Jesus, and Jesus rebukes him, and he tells the demons to leave. The people are shocked at this. They're surprised because they're used to seeing these strong, unclean spirits. They're used to seeing evil overtake people without relenting. And this is what they say. They say about Jesus, he commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. The one who is stronger. And this fits again with the prophetic word in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 10, part of a text that we looked at during Advent, that time of expectation of the one who would come, a text that is seen as speaking to the character of God and the nature of Christ. In Isaiah 40, verse 10, the prophet writes, see, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. one who is stronger. Over and over again, you see in the Hebrew scriptures and then in the gospel and throughout the gospels, Jesus is seen as one who is stronger. One who is stronger. Stronger than what? Stronger than who? The one who is stronger. And this is why we follow him. This is why we follow Christ. Why we follow Christ? Because Christ is stronger. God's message of love made manifest in Christ is stronger than anything else in the world. And so when we see evil, when we hear hateful rhetoric, whether it was this week or it was over the past four years or plenty earlier, when we hear words that are counter to Christ, we are called to stand up and say something. We are called to make hard choices about how we interact with people who are our friends, people we love. We are called to stand up to intimidation on social media. We are called to listen to the voices of the oppressed. We are called to stand with those who are marginalized. When people with disabilities are mocked, when policies and systems disproportionately impact black Americans, when lies are spread as a weapon, 
We are called to ask where the stronger one stands. And we are called to stand with the stronger one. And what does that mean? What does this look like? It means that we need to learn more about the one we follow. We need to educate others about the one we follow. And we need to use our minds to think about the one who we follow in our own lives. And we need to use our minds to think about who we listen to, what news we read, what social media posts we choose to click, share, or like. We need to think before we act, and we need to learn, and we need to grow, and we need to repent. Repent. It's a strong word, but really this word simply means to turn, to turn, to change, to look again. If you've ever followed a car on a highway at night, this actually happened to me couple years ago going to family camp, if you're ever following a car, you have to stop every once in a while and make sure you're still following the right car. I wasn't. I had to figure it out using GPS again, and I got where I needed to go, but I wasn't following the right car. That's what repentance is. It's turning back. It's making sure, am I following the stronger one? Am I on the heels of Jesus? And so we repent for the ways that we've allowed the perpetuation of evil rather than standing up to it. The events of this week in Washington didn't happen in a vacuum. And although we watched them happen over a matter of hours, they didn't happen overnight. They happened in part because people like me, and maybe like you, thought it would never come to this. And so we kept quiet. I ignored social media posts during this past year that questioned questioned things like the treatment of African Americans in this country, the systemic violence and racism. I ignored them. I didn't engage with people who were spreading lies right in front of me. I shook my head, but I didn't say anything. I didn't say anything when people in the name of Christ defended policies that Christ rejects. I watched the political party, a political party with which I have been affiliated nearly my entire adult life. I watched it slip even further away from the stronger one. And I just shook my head. I walked away, yes, but I said nothing. So while this past week was a tipping point for many of us, probably, I hope, nearly all of us, where we could finally point at people and say, no, that's not okay. This didn't happen overnight. They didn't happen overnight. The individuals who invaded our capital were the manifestation of evil that we've been seeing in our world throughout history, including our modern history. 
an evil that Jesus absolutely knew well. When Jesus was born, nearly the first thing his parents did was flee because Herod was killing every baby in the hopes that he'd kill the Messiah. But the stronger one did not die. When Jesus responded to an angry mob that wanted to stone an adulterous woman, they turned on him and and he stood against evil with a woman who wasn't perfect, but who was being persecuted and the stronger one prevailed. When he was confronted by the law, by people trying to convince others that he was ignoring the Hebrew tradition, Jesus came back at them with the law and he silenced them because they were standing in the way of the law's true purpose, a purpose of fulfilling God's love. The stronger one was also the smarter one. When he encountered the sick, the poor, the oppressed, the marginalized, the weak, the mourning, the refugee, the outcast, the suffering, when he encountered them, he loved them and he made them stronger. He lifted them up. The stronger one. And friends, when it looked like it looked like the stronger one had been crushed, when it looked like evil had prevailed and Jesus was strung up on a cross, actually killed because it was worth it for him to die for the oppressed. It is then, in that moment, that a police officer, a centurion, hearing Jesus cry out his last breath, This officer supervising the death of Christ looks up and stood facing Jesus. And he declared, truly, this man was God's son. Echoing the declaration of the voice from heaven at the baptism of Christ that Loretta read for us. You are my son, the beloved. With you, I am well pleased. The one who is stronger is coming, John says. Truly, this man was God's son, declares the centurion. When we think of baptism today, I know that for many of us, we hold on to the strong traditions. Flowing white gowns smiling grandparents and parents and aunts and uncles and everyone gathered around. In this church, we also focus a great deal on the responsibility of the congregation to care for and nurture the child. Baptism, particularly infant baptism, is a beautiful element of the church life as we celebrate God's claim on our lives. Before a baptism, I meet with parents to go over our theology of baptism and to discuss their role in the actual baptism. By then, they're already starting to make plans for maybe a brunch or other celebration. They are thinking about who to invite and what they'll wear and all of those things. And and yet we sit down and we talk about baptism. And we talk about their role. Their primary role in the actual baptism is to answer some questions. 
I wonder sometimes how other pastors go over these questions with young parents, many of whom probably don't spend too much time in the church. The questions are prescribed, they're required. But I also know that some pastors play a little fast and loose and just focus on the celebration, the touchy-feely parts of the baptism. By now you might be thinking, what are these questions he's talking about? I wanna go over a few of them. And I'm gonna allow for some brief silence after I read each question. I'd like you to think about and respond to these three questions because these questions, these questions are the root of how we follow the stronger one. These questions and our answers to them are how we are called to continually renew our commitment to living lives that seek to know and recognize the one about which the centurion declared truly this man was God's son. Trusting in the gracious mercy of God, do you turn from the ways of sin and renounce evil and its power in the world? Who is your Lord and Savior? Will you be Christ's faithful disciple, obeying his word and showing his love? Friends, we read in our Book of Common Worship that in baptism, God entered into covenant with you. And God has invited you to follow the stronger one, the one who gives us new life, strengthens us to resist evil, and nurtures us in love. Through this covenant, we choose whom we will serve by turning from evil and turning to Jesus Christ. This is good news, but it is hard news. There is evil in our world. There will be evil in our world. But we follow one who is stronger than all evil. We declare Jesus as Lord, a declaration that would have gotten us killed 2,000 years ago. We declare Jesus as Lord and Jesus partners with us and we with him to bring the stronger love into a world that needs it, that needs us, that needs Christ. God is ready for us to follow Christ. We need to be ready to choose to follow Christ again and again and again. With discerning eyes and thoughtful minds, 
as we seek to resist evil in the world, as we seek to be a part of God's work of love. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.